second before I pray to underline something Troy said earlier, and that is that this Wednesday night here in our town center, which has been our worship center, we are having an all-church prayer meeting. Now, let me ask you guys a leading question. Who is an all-church prayer meeting for? You guys. You know, we've had weekly prayer during this Compelled by Grace wrap-up that we're calling the uh, Love One Journey, and we've had, you know, we have four to 5,000 people worship with us each weekend here, and this is the low season, and the high season we'll have between five and 6,000, and we've had maybe two dozen people meet in the chapel for prayer. And though it's two dozen that arguably God wanted there and he hears their prayers and it's been wonderful and all of that, uh, you know, the way that many of us feel when we see that is, wow, there has to be more people (laughs) in our church that would be willing to gather and pray at a critical season like this, a season where we're about to go back into our worship center with 2,000 seats and many of them needing to be filled by lost ones who need to hear about Jesus. community that we care about both outside there and then the community in here. So we need to gather to pray. We're only calling you one time. I mean, really calling you, saying we need you to come and pray, and that's this Wednesday. Some of you are shy and you're more introverted and you think, well, what does it really matter? I'm just going to sit there. No, you won't. You're going to sit there and you're going to agree with us as we have corporate prayer, liturgical prayer, small group prayer, uh, individual prayer where people pray in the house. You're going to agree with all of that. And the Bible says that where two or three come together in my name and agree, there I am among them. And the will of the Father will be done. So your presence alone is so critically important. It really is. So that's about as big a push as I can give, amen? And so uh, I really do beg you that if you're available on Wednesday night, uh, then please be in this room with me because I'll be leading the time to pray for us in our all-church prayer time. And speaking of that, let's pray right now as we go into our time in the Word. Father, it's been a tough week for our nation. Uh, Another shooting, God, and our hearts go out to Umpqua Community College and to the community there in Roseburg up in Oregon. And we pray, God, that your compassion, that your grace, that your power would be upon that community as they pick up the pieces and as, Lord, many of them grieve the loss of loved ones. And, God, we pray that you would even reveal yourself very personally uh, in and through many of them during this tragic time. God, I pray to you, protect our nation. It seems like craziness is becoming addictive, that God, things are, are careening out of control at times. So we pray, God, that you would continue to use us as followers of you to be reasonable, to be loving, to be truth tellers uh, to the world around us, and that, Lord, you'd move in and through us and even our nation. God, as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight to understand rightly this all-important topic before us. We pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. Amen. So I want to talk to you about what I consider to be, hands down, one of the most important, if not the most important topic that Christians or anybody can talk about in church or anywhere, and it's the topic of eternity. 
eternity. I love how the Bible puts it using very poetic and yet simple language. It says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. You know, it's ironic, this month in Arizona and all over the nation, the grass is going to die. Your grass is going to brown, it's going to wither, and much of it's going to get blown away in the Arizona wind. And though some of you think that you're going to cheat the process by planting winter grass, which the rest of the nation can't do, you know what's going to happen in the spring to your winter grass? Say it with me. It's going to die. And then the other grass will come in. Why? Because grass is seasonal. By its very nature, it springs up and then after a short season, it dies and it blows away in the wind. And what God says is that from his vantage point, which is we're going to see in a minute, is the vantage point of eternity, your life is like that. Your life to him is very much like a blade of grass, a beloved blade of grass, mind you, a blade of grass that, that, that sprouts up and, and then after its short season, maybe 70, 80, 90, if you're really blessed, 100 years, then it is no more. But God, in his nature, in his character, is not like that. The scriptures tell us he is from everlasting to everlasting, which I think means eternity. And the reason he is that way is because he rules over all, even time and the boundaries that are set by time. So don't miss, what you have here is the Bible making a clear distinction between what philosophers call temporal existence versus eternal existence. Temporal versus eternal. Between that which is only in the here and now, bound by time, bound by this world, and certainly at some point going to come to an end, temporal, and then that which is eternal in nature, that which will last forever into infinity. And the Bible makes this distinction all over the place. It almost just assumes it, that there's a temporal world and an eternal world. And it's to that that I want us to talk about today. But you see, the problem in talking about it today is twofold. First, we live in a secular culture today in which there are some, and it's becoming more, that don't believe in this dual reality of temporal and eternal. They don't believe in what they would call this nonsense or this fanciful wish of eternal reality, they opt only for the temporal. These are the atheists or the agnostics or the humanists among us, and they see reality as only in the here and now. And that's a problem. We're going to address that today. But there's an even worse problem today, guys, and that is that even among those of us who do believe in the eternal, tell me if this isn't true, many of us are so caught up in the temporal we're so caught up in life here and now with our jobs, our kids, our worries, our 401ks, our, our, our dreams, our dash dreams, all of those things that we hardly give a thought to what eternity is like, let alone live our lives in light of it. And it's here that I find that atheists and theists are on common ground. We both have very little appreciation for what the Bible says about eternity, we both do well at living in the temporal but fail to grasp the realities of what comes next. And it's this I want to discuss with you today. 
And to do this, I'm going to share with you two foundational biblical truths about eternity. Two things that the Bible says very pointedly and profoundly about the nature of eternity and why you and I should have it more centered in our minds and our hearts each, each day that we live here in temporal reality. And so here's the first thing that the Bible says, and that is that eternity is indeed real. Now watch this. And our hearts know it. Whether you believe that or not, whether deep down you've gotten to this point or not, the Bible cuts through all that and says, think about it. Deep down you know that this life is not all that there is. There's something in you, I'm going to argue hardwired in you, that says there's more than this temporal reality. The Bible affirms that as it affirms that eternity is real. Uh, look at how the Bible does this. So this is our theme verse for today. Ecclesiastes, which is a great book in the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 11, says this. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now let's slow down and park in front of this for a second here. Notice that he says he has put eternity into mankind's heart. Eternity in our hearts. Now that word eternity here is the Hebrew word olam. It's a very common word in the Old Testament. When it was originally coined, it was a word that meant that which is hidden. Because they were thinking about the remote past, but they could only think so far in the past, so it became darkened as they tried to think too far in the past. It was hidden. Then as the Hebrews considered the remote future, obviously they couldn't see the future, so that was dark as well. That was hidden. They developed a word for this that they called olam, and olam meant that which is hidden initially, and eventually it would be the Hebrew word for forever, for eternity. That as you look into the distant past, as you looked into the distant future, because we are finite and can only see so far, we can't see far enough. And that's the word that they use to describe eternity, this, this place outside of time, this place that would go on forever into all of eternity. And this word olam, as you can imagine, is a very popular word in the Old Testament. It appears 437 times, most of the time translated forever, or in this case here, eternity. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes here is using this word in a very interesting sense. What he is arguing, and many thinks this is Solomon, the wisest person to ever live, next to Jesus, of course, what they think Solomon is arguing here is that the human soul is hardwired to think about eternity. That the human soul can't escape this idea that temporal existence is not all there is. There has to be more. God has put eternity into man's heart, into his mind, into his emotions, into his very soul. And so I love how Kyle and Dalich, two 19th century Hebrew scholars, put it in their great commentary on Ecclesiastes. They say, God has established in man an impulse, leading him beyond that which is temporal toward the eternal. There's an instinct peculiar to his nature, impelling him to pass beyond this fragmentary knowledge and to comprehend eternity. In fact, the impulse of man shows that his innermost wants cannot be satisfied by that which is temporal. He is being limited by time. 
but as to his innermost nature, he is related to eternity. Whoa, do you understand what is being put forth here? I mean, it's being suggested that human beings, different from all other creation, have the capacity to reflect and contemplate at such a level that we can even contemplate eternity. And what you need to know, guys, is that this is what separates us from all other creation. Let's be specific, from your dog and from your cat and from your fish and from your ferret or whatever your animal is. You know, I I love my dogs. Kim and I have two dogs, Callie and Cooper. Uh, One is a 50-pound mutt. The other one's a a little Jack Russell. And and we love them. They sleep right next to our bed. Not on our bed, next to our bed. And and, and every time I get home, they're waiting to greet me there, usually because they want food or something like that. But they both have wonderful personalities, and we we love our our dogs. Uh, But there is a difference between me and my dog. And the big difference is, is what philosophers call this idea of a higher level of thinking. Now watch this, that I can know that I know. I can contemplate that I know. And my dog can't do that. I mean, I love my dog, but my dog is not sitting there daydreaming all day going, I wonder what eternity is like. I mean, dogs don't do that. Only human beings know that we know. We can contemplate things like eternity. And the question I'm going to ask you in a second is where does that come from? I mean, is that just a higher level of intelligence as the naturalists tell us? Is it just that our brains have a higher capacity for neurons to fire in a certain way and at a level that other creatures don't? Or could there be, in addition to that, what the Bible calls the image of God at work in us, When Genesis 2 says that God breathed in us the breath of life, could he have put a spiritual nature inside of us that also works alongside the organic part of us and that God has hardwired us than to think about spiritual and eternal things? You see, that's what this passage is telling us, is that God has made you and me, every human being, in his image, and we can't escape it. We're going to think about eternal and spiritual things. And you'll see why this is so important in a minute here, but just latch on to this one right now, that as human beings made in the image of God, even if you deny him, even if you say I haven't found him yet, we're going to help you do that. You're hardwired to think about him. I love how Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the better 20th century theologians, said it once. He said that when the finite looks into the infinite, he gets dizzy. You see, my dog can't get dizzy at that level. Do we all understand that? He can't. Uh, My dog, being finite, can't look into the infinite. You and I can. And we have to ask ourselves, when we're honest with ourselves, where does that come from? The Bible says that this is God's gift to you. He has put eternity into man's heart. Now watch this. For the simple purpose that as you and I contemplate this idea of eternity, we might then ask, well, what is the meaning of it all? I mean, if there really is eternal existence and temporal existence, then there has to be more than just this world. And what does that mean? And you see, that's what the rest of this verse goes on to say. Give me a click here, Leah, thanks. It says he has put eternity into man's heart. Now, notice this. So that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, that sounds kind of negative. 
That sounds kind of frustrating. I don't think it is. I think all this is saying here, and this is awesome, is that when you and I recognize that eternity is put into our hearts, when we start to contemplate spiritual and eternal things, one of the first things that we sense is that we aren't God. Amen? We aren't. I mean, we might think we are. We're a God at work, and we're a God in our family and all these things. You're not. You're just saying that in an analogous sense, and the analogy is wrong. When you start to contemplate spiritual and eternal things, you realize, I have no idea what God did in the history past, unless the Bible tells me, and even there it's just a scant evidence. I have no idea what he's going to do in the far future, and you start to realize that you aren't God. I love how John Jarek, one of the commentators on this passage, says it this way about this particular part of the passage. He says, the creator will not let the creature be his equal. And you start to realize that. And the reason that that's so important is that once you get to that point, now track where you've come from. You've gone from being an atheist to contemplating eternity to realizing that there there must be more than this temporal world to realizing that God really exists. And now you realize that you are not him. And you know what the very next step becomes? Is then you ask the $10 question and you go, well, then what is my place in all of this? right? You say, well, then if all that's true, if that's the journey that I've been led on in my mind and heart, then where does that leave me? And it's at this point that you and I are now ready for the second key thing that the Bible tells us about eternity. And this takes us well beyond eternity 101 that we just looked at. We're now going to go into 201 and 301 territory. And it's this, that eternity is not a unilateral reality that there is a choice that must be made. And it's the most life-giving thing you can realize about eternity. That word unilateral there, defined by Webster's Dictionary, means having only one side, affecting only one side of a subject. And so the word bilateral would be the opposite of unilateral. It would mean having two sides of a subject, two or more things going on in any given situation. That's what bilateral means. And what you need to know is that this is what the Bible says is going on when we consider eternity, that it's not a unilateral reality with only one side to it. It involves more than this. There is more than one side to eternity. And choices need to be made to decide which side you want to be on. And though I know it's an awkward conversation for educated 21st century Americans living in Scottsdale in 2015 to want to talk about, what you need to know is that Jesus is the one who taught us about this. And he did so on multiple levels. At one point, Jesus tells us one of his favorite famous parables. I actually don't think it's a parable this time. I think it was more of a true story with some analogies in it. But nonetheless, he tells us a story of how at the end of time, when he will return a second time, he's going to separate humanity into two distinct groups, what he calls the sheep and the goats. And that's where the analogy is, the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are going to be those who did his will as they followed him on this earth, and it's going to be shown by the life that they lived. And Jesus even gives some examples in this story. He says that those sheep fed the hungry, provided for the thirsty, welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, visited the sick, and ministered to those in prison. 
So the sheep are those that followed God, that followed Jesus, and in so doing, their lives bore fruit in a tangible way as they loved even the most needy around them. Those are the sheep. But then there's another group that Jesus called the goats, and those are going to be those who lived only for themselves, and they didn't live for God or anybody else. They were self-satisfied, self-focused, self-obsessed people. And at the end of this analogous story, Jesus wraps up, as he did so often, with very hard-hitting words. And yet, let's process these right now. Here's how he wraps up the story. He says, and these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. So you have Jesus making a distinction here, don't miss this guys, between two realms of eternity, let's just call them eternity with God and eternity without God. And again, though it's awkward for some to want to talk about in polite society today, what this is showing us is that eternity at the very least will be a bilateral reality in which all people go into eternity. I mean, again, that's the beauty of this. Everybody's going to go into eternity because that's what God made us for, but not all are going to have the same eternal reality. Why? Because choices need to be made, this side of heaven, that determine eternal reality. And what I need you to see right now is that this is such an amazing thing God has blessed us with because he's a respecter of the human person. He's a respecter of this wonderful creation, you and I, that he has made. He loves you and respects you so much that he promised you eternal life. But he also realizes, as we'll see in a minute here, that you are fallen, that you have gone your own way, so he's going to offer you a way out of that to receive forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. And that choice needs to be made. And that choice determines whether at the end of time we're a sheep or a goat. That's what Jesus taught us about eternity. I love how C.S. Lewis, the famous Oxford professor and writer back in the uh, mid-1900s, once put it in his great little book, The Weight of Glory. Uh, This is, again, a 60-some-odd-year-old book, but just uh, follow along in his more formal language what he's saying, because this is really rich. He says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may be one day a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. Now, pause right there. What's he saying? He's saying that there are going to be people you talk to today that because of their eternal trajectory, moving toward God and living a life in him and, and coming home to Jesus and all of that, that someday when you meet them in heaven, they're going to be so angelic. You're not going to worship them. You're only going to worship God. But if you could, you'd probably worship them Uh, because those are some people that you meet today. Then he goes on to say, or else you might meet somebody who is a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. (laughs) In other words, we won't spend much time on this, but you might meet some people that are destined for a trajectory that is not toward God for all of eternity. He goes on to say, all day long, we are in, in some way, helping each other to one or more of these destinations. 
It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. And I love how he ends this. He says there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Isn't that awesome? You know, you read science fiction books today like I do, or you get sci-fi movies, and you know, they're all after you know, this, this life of immortality. God's already beat them to the punch. Do we understand that? God already says, you're all destined for immortality. It's going to happen. You might not believe it. You might doubt it. Tough. It's going to happen. You're a blade of grass, but that grass is going to grow again on the other side. And so everybody we talk to, even you, we're not talking to ordinary people. There is no such thing as ordinary people. We are not mere mortals. We are destined for immortality. But the nature of that immortality is not settled until we make some choices this side of heaven. And the question then becomes, what choices need to be made to determine how one spends eternity? Again, let's let Jesus guide us in this. Let me wrap up by sharing with you the most popular passage in all of America in all of the Bible. Do you know what that passage is? John 3.16. For those of you who are older, you remember that wacko at the football games that used to hold up the sign? John 3.16, that kind of put it on the map back there in the 80s and 90s. And now just about everybody knows at least that there is a John 3.16. Let's look at what it says. Jesus is speaking. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, say it with me, eternal life. The gospel is not complicated, guys. There's two words to sum up the gospel, and it's this, sin and forgiveness. Sin and forgiveness, one negative and one positive. God begins with the negative. And that's that though he created you in his image and he loves you beyond measurement, the reality is that you have fallen from him. You've gone your own way. I think all of us can admit that. And your sin separates you from him. And so somehow, some way, you need forgiveness. In order to spend eternity with God, in order to be a sheep, you need forgiveness. And the whole point of Jesus coming to this earth 2,000 years ago, again, look at John 3.16, is that God gave his only son. He sent him to the cross. And at that cross, he bore your sin and my sin upon himself so that we might be forgiven. And the only condition he attaches to that, which really isn't a condition because it's the free gift, is that the gift has to be received. You have to come to a point in your life where you say at the very least to God, thank you. <laughs> I receive what you have given to me in Jesus, and I invite Jesus into my life to be my Lord, to be my Savior, to be my leader, to be my forgiver, and I submit to him, and I will follow him. That's what God wants from you. And when we do that, the Bible says immediately, you become one of those sheep. In fact, Jesus says, you are now one of my sheep. And you are destined for eternity with him. And so the question becomes, what's it going to be for you? You see, as we've established here today, you're not going to live on this earth forever. But you are going to live forever. And so what is it going to be for you? There's a great story I read this week that I, I didn't even know this about a, uh, 
Japanese man who um, had a very unique experience back in the 1940s. His last name was Yamaguchi. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his first name, Sachi, but his last name was Yamaguchi. And on August 6, 1945, Yamaguchi, was, who was a maritime engineer, was in the city of Hiroshima, Japan. And for those of you who know your history, on August 6, 1945, at 8.15 that morning, he heard a bomber flying over the city. Suddenly there was a great flash and he was blown over in a powerful force. The first atomic bomb dropped on Japan that day. It killed 140,000 people, but Yamaguchi was not one of them. He survived the blast. His face and his arms were burned. He was temporarily uh, blinded, and his hearing was affected for the very rest of his life. But he survived the blast. The very next day when his sight came back, he wanted to return to his home city. Now, this is where the story gets rich. His home city was about 190 miles southwest of Hiroshima. It was a home city called Nagasaki. And on the very next day, he went to his home city, and two days later, the second bomb was dropped, this time on Nagasaki. And the, the, the building that Yamaguchi was staying in was completely blown over. He was knocked unconscious. And they dug him out of the rubble later, only to find him alive and ironically, through this blast, unhurt. Uh, all told, so over 210,000 people died in those bombings, about half the population of those two cities. And, and yet, there was about 260,000 people that survived. But there's only approximately 165 people that survived both blasts. But because of record-keeping, there's only one that they could verify, and it was Yamaguchi. He is the only person officially recognized by the Japanese government to survive both blasts. Ironically, he would go on to live for another 65 years. He wouldn't die until the year 2010 at the age of 93. And I love how the article says it. At the end of this article that chronicled all of this, it said, and I quote, what two atomic bombs could not do, old age did. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine surviving two bomb blasts like that. Imagine surviving even all that you do. But Isaiah is right. God is right. At the end of the day, no matter what you survive, because some of you are great cancer survivors or whatever, you're still a blade of grass. God doesn't change the game. He still calls you the same thing, a beloved blade of grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. What cancer didn't do, what atomic bombs didn't do, what maybe that accident you had 10 years ago didn't do, old age someday is going to do. So the point is, Billy Graham was right, that death is the most democratic experience in life. We're all going to get a chance to participate <laughs> All of us are someday going to die. What choices have you made to secure your eternity? Uh, this is a special day at our church. We're going to wrap up doing this. There are some of you who walked into church here today, and uh, you walked in as a believer in Jesus Christ. You couldn't wait to get here to worship. You've been walking with God lately. You're doing very, very well. Is that rain? Oh, darn. I knew I should have brought my wife's car to church. Anyways, uh, you've been walking with God. You're doing very, very well. And our gift to you is a reminder of the choices that you have made to secure your eternal destiny and to say to you to keep on keeping on. So we're going to help you do that as we close our service. But then there's some of you who came into church here today, and you have not yet made that choice 
to become a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ. You might have thought you did because you go to church. You might have thought you did because you're an American. But believe me, I spent the first 18 years of my life going to church at least twice a year and, and thinking that because I was a good American that, that I was a Christian. And it was when somebody explained the gospel to me that I realized that I am not a follower of Jesus and I needed to make a choice to do so. And we're going to give you a chance to do that today. We're actually going to invite you to come down here to be up here in the front with me and to pray to receive Jesus Christ. Some of you are ready to do that today, and you need to make the choice to do that today. And Mark, today is the day that you became a Christian, that you decided to become a follower of Jesus. He welcomes you. He's been waiting for you. And today is the day for you to come home to him. But then there's a third type of person here today. And it's those of you who have made a decision to follow Christ. I mean, you clearly could say, I, I'm a Christian. I know what it means to be a Christian. I have followed Jesus. However, uh, over the years, or maybe even over the last few weeks and months, uh, you have strayed. Uh, the Bible is realistic. It understands that. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us, to our own way. The prodigal son, the prodigal daughter. And, and you realize that you aren't where you used to be and that you need to re-up your commitment to Christ. We call it a recommitment. I got saved in March 11th, 1981. That's when I clearly became a Christian. I was 17 years old. I remember like it was yesterday. But I got to tell you guys, multiple times since then, I've had to have a, a renewed spiritual commitment where I came down an aisle to recommit my life to Christ. And some of you need to do that here today. I told you last week, it's imperative, if for no other reason, for our church that you do that because we're entering into an amazing season at our church and I need all of us at top game. <laughs> I need all of us uh, recommitted if needed to be to Christ for what I believe he has for us next. And we're gonna give you a chance to do that today. So I'm gonna pray here in a minute. The band is gonna come out right now. And after I am done praying, we're gonna play a song. You can sing along to it. You can just pray during the song. But as soon as the song starts praying, I want you who need to come forward to come forward. I'm going to stay here uh, to welcome you here and then pray with you after the song. But this is your time with God. Again, either to receive Christ for the very, very first time. He's waiting for you or to recommit your life to him. We had an amazing time last night doing this as a church. We anticipate the same. My last word to you is do not be shy. Some of you right now are thinking, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Stop it. You do know. And today is the day that you need to come forward to receive Christ or to recommit your life to him. We welcome you up front to do that. This is your time with God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who gives us second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, just seven times 70 chances when it comes to your grace. And Lord, there's some of us here today that are just doing awesome in our spiritual life. We're so close to you that we feel like we're almost next to heaven. And God, we rejoice in that today. And we're glad for our brothers and sisters in Christ who support us in their strength here that way today. But God, there's other of us who need to make a commitment to you, who need to come forward here now and surrender our lives to you for the very, very first time through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And then there's, Lord, others of us who have done that already but need to recommit our lives to you to come home once again and start our life in a very real way to reboot our spiritual life and begin walking with you again. God, 
Receive us to yourself now, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. second I'd like to talk to you you need to know and I, I don't say as tritely that you have had so many people praying for you all week <laughs> I, I was ruminating yesterday just on how amazing of a moment this is because 
all week long God has known, well, all of eternity God has known, that he has wanted to tap you on the shoulder this day and hoping that you would respond. And you have. And some of you are recommitting your life here to Christ today. Some of you, for the very first time, are committing your life to Christ here today. And what I need you to know as your friend and as your pastor is that he receives you. He receives you unto himself. And we're with you. We love you. And God loves you. So let's have every head bowed right now and let's commit ourselves to the Lord in prayer. God, our gracious, merciful, heavenly Father, we thank you for times like this that we can, as individuals and as a church, God, come before you and commit our lives to you. And Lord, there are some down here this morning that are for the very first time coming before you in this way. And God, they pray a prayer like this. They say, oh God, thank you that you love me that from eternity past you have called me and that you've given your son for me. I admit I'm fallen. I admit I'm a sinner in need of profound grace. And I realize today that Jesus is the one that you gave for me. And so I receive him. I invite him into my life as my Lord and as my Savior is the only one who could forgive me of my sin. And I accept him that way. God, I pray that anybody who's prayed that prayer here this morning would know that today is the day that they came home to you and that you receive them and give them that joy and assurance that only you can give. Father, there's others here uh, now as well, Lord, who have come to you before clearly. They know that. But God, it's time to recommit their lives to you. And God, as they kneel here before you, they pray this. They say, oh, God, thank you that again you have loved me and that your grace knows no end that seven times 70 you forgive and that Lord you receive us back even as we have strayed we recommit our lives to you here in this moment Lord bring back the joy of our salvation that first fervor that we had in those earlier days God restore that to us and may that passion and may that conviction, may that love and that grace reign supreme in our souls as we now live for you. Amen. God, thank you that you receive us this way. Thank you that your grace is poured out on us. As we all now leave from this place, God, may we go knowing that this has been a special day, a defining moment for those of us who are down here. And Lord, may we all take joy in that. And I pray this with great thanks to you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name, and we all say together, amen. Thank you, guys. God bless you, and have a great day.